0: I remember going on road trips as a young kid with my family. And I remember one night we were driving from Atlanta, Georgia to North Carolina. And it was late. And my mom was trying to direct us using this big Rand McNally map that we kept in the glove box. And we had gotten off a wrong turn. We had no idea where we were. My parents were frustrated, they were fighting, they were arguing. We had to like ask strangers like what street we were on. And I just remember her squinting over this folded map and just how hard it was to find your way in new places. And now every single day, pretty much I use Google maps. Like yesterday I needed to go to this place called WBUR city space. And I just type it in. It tells me how far away it is. I press directions and shows me where there's traffic. It shows me where to turn right, where to turn left. And if I get lost and take a long road, it just knows where I am and reconfigures where I should go. It's magical. It's incredible. It's amazing. And for most of human history, we had nothing like this. I mean, really, a map for so long was a static object. It showed the roads and the natural landscape, but it didn't show you where in the world you were. The maps we have now are incredible. But having a map at all is an amazing thing. To have a zoomed out bird's eye view of the world, of the place where I stand and the places I've never even been, and to be able to use this tool to find something out there in the world, This too is a relatively recent development. It's true that people have been talking about geography, the study of where things are in the world for millennia.
1: Geographic thinking is part of ancient sources throughout the medieval, late antique medieval period, all the way up to the Renaissance. People are always talking, where are people from? But it's not exactly exact, right? That's Michael Torek, an associate in
0: the history department at Harvard University. He studies early modern Europe, a time and place when map making, Accurate map making was on the rise.
1: And so when you're trying to create a map, you might look at earlier maps or attempts at maps. They're not necessarily ones that are useful, right? In the sense of being able to follow it and be like, okay, I'm going to find this exact location. It was the 1500s and the Europeans understanding the world was changing.
0: They had learned of new lands and explored previously mysterious ones. But when they looked at the old maps, things didn't always line up
1: then you start developing and thinking about, okay, well, we have all these other worlds that are not listed in antiquity that we've discovered, i.e. the Americas. Um, We have these ancient sources that purport to give certain uh, directions. So trying to take that information, create a map that's reliable, that shows um, not only what, where everything is and where it's located numerically, but also to show what belongs to me and what doesn't belong to me is very, very important, right? Where can you stake your claim, especially when you're beginning to explore? Um, on a ship, having a map that's accurate, along with other navigational instruments, very, very, very important.
0: This understanding depends on the maps we have, actually mapping what's there. In the 1500s, what was there was up for debate. New mapmakers were pushing back against ancient maps that showed a world they didn't see or didn't believe in. Take Maciej Meovita, for example. Meovita was a Polish scholar. In his 1517 text, the *Treatise on the Two Sarmatias*, Meo argued that two mountain ranges that were described on maps dating back to antiquity did not, in fact, exist.
1: So, when you say that an important um, geographical feature that's been, you know, laid out in text um, that people who've traveled there have say exists, and then you say it doesn't exist, puts all those other maps that list those mountains into question, right? You know, I mean, if I'm using my 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 Google Maps today, and I'm I'm hoping to get somewhere, and it, it keeps on saying that this doesn't exist, that kind of an, anxiety is an important thing that's motivating the reaction to it. Um, but also, you know, whether or not you, you think that the authorities that you're reading from antiquity are worth reading, and if not, then you have to find something else, and that's what makes this text particularly bold. Welcome to Writ Large, a
0: podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Michael Torek to discuss Meovita's treatise on the two Sarmatias. Maciej Meovita was born in 1457. He was a physician and a professor at what is today called the Jagiellonian University in Krakow. He was highly educated and studied abroad in Italy before returning to serve several important families in Krakow as well as the polish king
1: and he's probably a person you've never heard of but at the time he was the first best-selling author from poland
0: meo had two aims when writing the treatise on the two sarmatias
1: the first kind of aim of this text is geographical it's to say that these mountains that early modern europeans thought existed the ruffian and the hyperborean they don't exist and that all ancient authorities like ptolemy for instance and anyone who followed Ptolemy in creating maps, uh, descriptions of Europe and of the world were absolutely wrong. So, when you tell, you know, receive authority that they're absolutely wrong, whether ancient or contemporary in his day, some people are, are going to get a little bit upset and maybe potentially uh, attack your work. And that's what ex- exactly happened with his book. Another major aim of this book is it actually rethinks what place Poland plays or where Poland comes from in the world. So essentially it's thinking, okay, if we're going to convey to early modern Europeans who are the Poles, what is Poland, what is its relationship to this region called Sarmatia. This book tells you what it is. And it's much more unexpected than scholars have realized.
0: Mayo Vita was not alone in these aims.
1: In many respects, this work is less his and more of the various patrons' power networks and figures trying to change the perception of what Poland was and what place it occupied in Europe. So it's very much something where he's handed a task. They tell him, we need to fix the public perception of what Poland is, not as barbarians descended from these Sarmatians, these ancient tribes that wreaked havoc on the ancient Romans, are often seen as kind of the source of the barbarians that came and overran Europe or the Roman Empire and basically trying to defend Poland's honor in the process. So they kind of hand him this task. They tell him, run with it. And that's what he does. Tell us about that idea of trying to have
0: a foundational myth on which to base a people.
1: It's absolutely essential. This is the standard practice for medieval, early modern Europeans. um, Trying to have that... Origin story that gives you legitimacy, right? Especially if you accept the fact that for early modern Europeans living in the Renaissance, you know, with the revival of ancient Roman and Greek culture, literature, you have this imagined golden age. So trying to place yourself in basically succession to what came afterwards is really important. Are um, your peoples descended from the barbarians that overran the Roman Empire? And if you are, how do you balance that origin with where you are now? Europeans
0: in the Renaissance were set on reviving the culture of the ancient Roman Empire, and they did not think kindly of the barbarians who brought that empire to an end. So accusing a group of being descended from pagan barbarians was a serious charge. It was enough to justify crusaders going in to pacify and forcibly convert them. At church councils,
1: Poles were frequently accused of barbarism, especially by Italian prelates. But being able to push back and say, well, wait a second, even though we might have been barbarians, um, here are these historical records, these things that perhaps we need to engage with to create a more accurate story.
0: Some Poles accepted the accusation that they were descended from barbarians, but they argued that they had changed. They had converted to Christianity, accepted classical languages, and become educated. They had been barbarians, but now they were civilized.
1: So even this kind of paradigm where you know where civilization begins and where barbarism begins is really important. So that's something that you know, when we think about reading even texts from this period, we have to understand that this is an important assumption that learned individuals make about the world and the people that are around them. So knowing where you're descended from is crucial.
0: Meovita positioned the now civilized Poles as the final barrier between Christendom and the invading Turks and the Tsardom of Russia also called the Tsardom of Muscovy.
1: This is part of his mission, Mihajovita, is to say, well, Poland is this bulwark here that is trying to defend not only from the Muslim Turks to the south, southeast, but also from Muscovy. This other schismatic, Christian, maybe semi-pagan polity that early modern Europeans are very interested, um, both as a potential ally, but also as a potential enemy. So knowing exactly where they come from justifies how do you interact with them politically, culturally, religiously. Um, Are they worth interacting with or should we just summarily kill them in warfare? And that's a thing that comes up quite often as well. So maybe
0: part of the reason this book was so popular in Western Europe is because Poland became seen as one of the borders of Christendom that was under
1: attack. I would say very much as this area, this this crossroads where this battle is taking place. And part of the problem um, that Mejovita is trying to address along with these various patrons who are supporting him in this endeavor is that, for the most part, a lot of Italians just assume Poles were part of Sarmatians, or even, even worse designation, Scythians. The
0: Sarmatians were an Iranian confederation from classical antiquity and would have been considered barbarians. They conquered the closely related Scythians in around 200 BCE. To ancient Greeks and Romans, Scythia was a mysterious place and the root of many evils.
1: So trying to push back and say, well, no, we're not Sarmatians, Poles. We're not Scythians. Um, we're actually something different. And this is, I think, the other thing that many scholars miss about Miahovita's text is that he's not saying that Poles are Sarmatians, as later Poles embrace, actually. He's actually saying that Poles are Vandals.
0: Vandals were a large Germanic tribe that are thought to have originated in Scandinavia. Some groups of vandals moved around present-day Europe and North Africa, including invading ancient Roman territories. But Meovita argued that Poles weren't descended from nomadic vandals,
1: they were descended from the vandals who stayed in place. And that's an important component here of the way early modern Europeans understand these movements of people and who is civilized and who's barbarian. Those who settle and farm tend to have that higher level of civilization. That's what's really important. So he draws upon the same thing and argues something that is often very much missed, but is an actually an extraordinarily bold proposition and one that fails miserably. <laughs> His contemporaries are like, you're wrong, this is not the right approach for descent. We're actually descended from Sarmatians, but... Um, That whole perception of that is really important, and that's why it's so important, right? It's not just simply the geography. It's not simply just uh, ethnic origin. It's also what type of history are you writing? How are you going to shape the history that's written about Poland subsequently? So uh, an audience member listening might say, well,
0: that's kind of interesting, but why should I care about Poland? And I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit more on Poland's role in European
1: self-understanding. When we think of Poland, say, today, and especially in light of recent history of World War II and obviously the Holocaust, you see a very different Poland that we imagine today. And that Poland is very different in the 16th century. Um, it's a major European power. Um, geographically speaking, it's probably the largest polity, one that stretches from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. It's multi-ethnic. Uh, becomes multi-religious, Christians, Catholic and Orthodox, and then later, obviously, Protestants, Jews, Muslims. So you have this multi-ethnic, multi-religious polity that is actually able to exert tremendous power and influence throughout Europe. It also, um, I think, in the 16th century, in particular, where education comes to bear in humanism, this is where this real golden age that's associated with Poland, Um, both today in Poland as well as at the time. You actually end up reading these sources throughout Western Europe, in Latin, and various other languages, and there's a recognition that this is an important polity that they don't understand, but they know it's gigantic, uh, it's incredibly powerful, uh, but they just don't know what it is.
0: Poland played a large role in education,
1: religion, and
0: politics, including European explorations.
1: You know, when we think of, say, European explorations around the world, we often think England, Spain, Portugal, France, right? But other Europeans are also thinking about these developments and thinking what is their place in respect to them. And one of these kind of aspects, which I, I found fascinating about this text, was Michowicz's connection of what's going on with these European explorations of the Americas, with what Poland's rural is not just in Europe, but also in the world. So he has this great line where this very much analogous role that you know, just as the Portuguese king is exploring these new territories and peoples all the way to India, uh, the Polish king is doing the same thing by opening up the eastern frontier and bringing civilization and religion to to East. So that's their ocean of conquest, so to speak. So that's one way of also thinking that you know you wouldn't necessarily imagine Poland as having these kind of even imperial aspirations if we think of Poland today but in the 16th century it's a it's a whole different different place scholars from Poland
0: including Mayo studied abroad in the south and they especially traveled to Italy to cities like Padua at the time Latin was the lingua franca of the educated class the treatise on the two Sarmatias was originally published in Latin but it was quickly translated into Polish German Italian and other languages It was reprinted into the
1: 17th century and included in compilations on the New World. Um, One of my own areas of study is that most people don't realize that Padua becomes this major academic center for students from Poland studying um, and acquiring tremendous amount of knowledge, connections, membership in the Republic of Letters, right? Um, So we can also think about it in that way, um, Poland being part of this major network of learning and scholars. Tell us a little bit more about the Republic of letters for for people who aren't familiar with it. Um, what was this? So the Republic of letters, and we often think of it much more in its later iteration, especially in the late sixteenth, seventeenth century up until the Enlightenment that's often seen as kind of the ideal republic of letters. But there's earlier versions of it um, that go back to the 16th century and even before that in the 15th century with Petrarch and other Italian humanists um, developing these networks of letter exchanges, right? That's a very important component. Sharing of works. And then obviously with the printing press, being able to share text quite quickly become essential to that. And developing this 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 commonwealth, as we would say, right, res publica, of learning, um, where theoretically you know each scholar can equally participate and share. Um, this becomes an incredible way for parts of Europe that you wouldn't necessarily imagine being able to participate. Um, and some scholars have argued that, especially in the 16th century under Erasmus, that creates a basis for a sense of being European, right? So we're talking about that transnational component. And I think that's really where we see that early modern... Republic of Letters that becomes influential um, much more popularly today begins then. And Erasmus is essential for this, um, essential in terms of fostering correspondence, having students come to study with him, uh, having and uh, encouraging having disciples in every corner of the known world is very, very, very important. Um, and what are they saying? They're exchanging information about texts that they're working on, questions of religion, friendship, recommendation. So it goes all the way from the very academic and intellectual to the very mundane as well. Um, grievances against other scholars, right? <laughs> so those those are aspects that we should keep in mind. And within that context that is formed especially at the end of the 15th and beginning of the 16th century by Erasmus, and he's not the only person, there are many other obviously important scholars that um, foster and nurture it in the course of the 16th century. Um, this text wouldn't have gotten any traction or as much traction without this network. And that's exactly where it actually sparks this incredible discussion, where you're at a time when Europeans love making maps. They're turning to ancient sources to figure out, okay, how do we represent the known world? And all of a sudden, someone writes a work that's then printed and then circulated, saying the source that you're using, this ancient authority that you highly revere is wrong, that's going to provoke some discussion. Um, and without those kind of basic um, networks of communication that that Republic of Letters fostered, that the printing press enabled, this work wouldn't have attracted the interest of the Holy Roman Emperor, right? And whole court of his own humanists wouldn't have attracted interest in Italy. It wouldn't have attracted a Dutch translation later on. And it reminds us that, you know, you can do a tremendous amount without necessarily having a, a digital component, right? We do things so quickly now and instantaneously, and you know, something having an impact in three months' time um, is relatively quick, <laughs> relatively quick in the early modern period instead of three seconds, right? And I think that's what some of these, this text allows us to see, is how you know, an obscure author in Poland can publish something, perhaps maybe be a little bit provocative, and all of a sudden it attracts all of these interesting attention.
0: One of the strongest negative reactions came from a Swedish humanist named Johannes Magnus.
1: He read Mehovita's work and ended up writing a very angry letter um, almost in the sense of almost was a trolling letter, which is later reprinted in a in a subsequent edition right before Mihovita's death, along with Mihovita's response. And you could have, like, I almost imagine when I was reading it, I was trying to think of contemporary analogies. You could see, like, the thread. You read the work, then there's the thread response saying, you're stupid, you're, you know, calling goths even worse barbarians. I already have to deal with that enough in the papal, papal court uh, in Rome. Why are you making things worse? You're a dummy. Um, and then having that very kind of moderate response, which also is very passive aggressive, saying like you're a young acolyte, don't worry, you don't know that much, but I'll forgive you for your lack of ignorance. So you can just imagine this as a early modern Twitter uh, troll exchange, which gets reprinted. Um, so there's that component as well. Without this network of circulating these texts, letters, this text doesn't have that same kind of traction.
0: Is there a way in which this work, and perhaps the functioning of the larger republic of letters? Contributed to liberal ideas. How much can we point to? Um, I don't know. A willingness to challenge ancient authorities, um, a respect for arguments for their own sake, um, to think about you know the beginning of pluralism,
1: tolerance, and a lot of Enlightenment ideals. Yeah, I would say it's almost it's almost two-face in some sense, um, where on the one hand, there's certainly that component. Um, this particular text I situate within precisely um, where we associate this kind of call for tolerance and, and a liberal approach with Erasmus, where his own interactions, he sees this as kind of a very important component of you know, overcoming these reproaches of barbarism to show how, what do we have in common, this common Christian, um, this common uh, cultural learning. Whereas uh, with Mihovita in this text, there is also this kind of other side, which is very, very clear in saying us and them, right? We, we're not those barbarians. Please think of us much more kindly. But then he says the real threat is someone else Muscovy. Uh, they're the ones who are the barbarians. They're the ones who are threatening Europe. We're the ones who are keeping them at bay, as well as the Turks who are also trying to invade and destroy Christendom. So there is that kind of side of like conflict, civilizational conflict um, that is also a part of this. So I some sense that that along with these calls for toleration and understanding, um, there's also sometimes calls for, there's a different boogeyman that needs to be, needs to be dealt with and, and sometimes destroyed. So to the West, you have the discovery of the Americas,
0: which cast doubt on ancient authority. And to the East, you have this Polish humanist, who's also calling into question the accuracy of these maps and therefore the legitimacy and authority of these ancient sources. And Western scholars are starting to be in an environment in which, oh, we're going to have to verify all the things that we think we know. Um, And so you could place this text in the larger context of the rise of, I guess, objective knowledge seeking or
1: science. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the on threats that goes out throughout this text by Mejovita, constantly questioning, as he puts it, the dark shadow of falsehoods that these ancient and contemporary writers that they've put on this region, Sarmatia, right? On Poland, on the peoples on there. Um, Absolutely. And part of what he says, like, I went and visited this site and saw this particular thing. So direct observation. Um, I know the languages of this region. They don't very kind of pushing back against what people assumed versus what people actually have verified. Um, So I think that's actually an extremely helpful way of thinking about this text as a way of being objective. Um, we're contributing to, to objective understanding, objective knowledge, um, th- that, and maybe a little
0: bit more respect for local expertise.
1: For sure, I think for sure, I think that's one of the the kind of threads that go throughout this. It doesn't mean that he's unbiased. Um, as you read the text, it's very clear he has some very seri- he doesn't hide some of his kind of bias against which which peoples and places are, are barbarian, but he also brings to bear that he's read and there's this great line that he has. I've read Slavonic sources. Um, something in the text where I haven't quite yet pinpointed what exactly he's referring to. Is it the primary chronicle? Um, Is it some other Slavonic chronicles that he's referring to? But he has these sources which, you know, German humanists, humanists from the Italian peninsula would have not had access to, would not have known the language. Um, So he's saying, I have access to another ancient language that you don't have that that is giving me information. So that's um, quite an intervention, so to speak. Um, This text, along with other historical, historiographical, ethnographical texts about Poland, shape its kind of what, the, what, they, what Poland becomes to the rest of Europe and to themselves. So they really, instead of what he suggests, Poland becoming Vandals, they become Sarmatians. And they embrace this ideology that becomes quite important, quite reflective of what Europeans think of the region, um, especially if we're thinking about you know, whether this is the beginning of the invention of Eastern Europe, right? Um, and there is this kind of – there are arguments that could be made that a lot of this embrace of this sarmatism, which this, this, this association that Poles, Polish nobles have with this ancient ancient origin story, um, create the kind of basis for being part of not Western Europe. Um, and they emphasize it so much. They say, well, our political system is better than the rest of Europe because it's democratic. Um, we are the bulwark of Christianity against the Ottomans and against Russia, right? Um It leads to a lot of intolerance, too. Initially, it becomes a kind of an opportunity for Catholic and Protestant noblemen in Poland to have a shared bond, but later on becomes much more Catholic and much more um, prejudice. Uh, It also leads to the development of different fashion sense, right? Which also can contribute to kind of, you can almost say, almost a Orientalism of these people, where they embrace very much what we would call Eastern fashions, Turkic fashions. Fur coats. Fur coats, uh, sashes around your waist, um, awesome shaved heads with a little like tuff of hair, um, which I often want. I don't have enough, enough hair for that anymore, but I'd love to, in my earlier days, I wish I could have tried that, right? And obviously a certain style of mar, martial skill and valor um, that they see as something making them separate from the rest of Europeans. So that's something where this text, I think, contributes indirectly um, and not in the way that I think... Many scholars realize. Scholars, even modern historians of, of say, early modern Poland and, and Europe, would say that this re-em- reemphasizes the sense of belonging, this the sense of Poles are Sarmatians. So it had the exact opposite consequences that he intended. Absolutely, and that's one thing that I've always been. You know, when you when you when students ask you, you know, how do I situate my work in a larger scholarly debate? This is how I situate this particular. Text in my own research is that it's a it's a gap Um, and I would say the other aspect which is part of the book that I'm writing now in terms of looking at early modern globalization from the point of view of uh, polities that don't have overseas empires is that it shows us a really interesting way of how a person doesn't necessarily need to travel to different parts of the world they can imagine and put together the developments that are going on in this time explorations going on to the Americas and to Asia, Um, understanding how not only Poland fits within Europe, but how other nations belong, but also chronologically where chronology almost collapses. Like you have to think not only up to your own day and across the world uh, vertically, but also chronologically going back all the way to the beginning of you know to Adam and Eve for them, right? Um, this is something that I think makes this text, and it's one of the reasons why I begin the book with this particular text as a as a springboard to thinking about how are how are Europeans not from overseas empires thinking about rising connections and disconnections uh, around the world. It makes it really really clear that it's not just Western Europeans who are thinking about these issues. It's a far greater spread than we actually thought, and that you could be could be a little obscure bookworm in Krakow and still think globally and locally at the same time.
0: Let's return now to one of the primary reasons that Mejowice wrote this text, to argue that the Rafaean and Hyperborean mountains didn't exist. 500 years later,
1: the existence of these mountains is still up for debate. I actually disagree with Michael Vita. I mean, he's absolutely totally wrong <laughs> that these mountains don't exist. Because um, I I mean, from, w- from what I gather and read, I mean, they're very clearly the Ural mountains. So there are some things to quibble with, which is great. You can read it even as a modern reader today. And that's one of the great things to say, what were you thinking in saying these mountains don't exist? That makes no sense. Um, but on the other hand, trying to figure out well, why is that important to deny? And part of it is to basically... If you're saying all this cartographic work, geographic work that's being done by Italian and German humanists, um, especially for the Holy Roman Emperor and laying claim to certain parts of Europe, is wrong, um, that's a pretty big, pretty big kind of rebuttal of their legitimacy, right? And that puts into question. So saying basically their title to the land isn't as good as you think it is, right? So I think that's what, what makes this particular geography and geography is human geography as history as peoples so fascinating in this text and fascinating to what's going on in Europe at this time. Um, and then obviously the Americas, right? This is something that's also equally important. How do you create a map of the world that's accurate that um, reflects something that isn't even found in biblical or ancient sources, right? <laughs> Can you trust these sources if they've never heard of this thing? And that's what makes this, this emergence particularly important. Um, it's haphazard. Um, each map gets better and better. And this particular text is one way of trying to improve that cartographic knowledge that's emerging at the time.
0: Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Fairon Do. Our theme song is by Ian Koss. And our branding is by Dan Pechy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.